Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Ervodio, about to pour some sugar on you because today's episode is a sweet one. We're joined by LA's Queen of Confections, Valerie Gordon, the chocolatier, chef, and entrepreneur behind Valerie Confections and Valerie Echo Park. Valerie's been blessing us with chocolates, truffles, and baked goods since 2004 and has recently opened a snazzy new location in Glendale. She joins us to walk us through her sugar-fueled career from the early days of churning out chocolate-dipped toffee out of a mid-city apartment to her recent foray into the afternoon tea game. She breaks down what it takes to run a food business that lasts the test of time, and let me tell you, she does not sugarcoat any of the details. But first... I want to tell you about a little baking adventure of my own. Let's just say your boy got super inspired at Pizza City Fest, but is nowhere near being the next Tony Gemignani. What are you going to do? Without further ado, let's chow down. Happy Friday, dear listener. I don't know about you, but I'm absolutely stoked for the weekend. We haven't pretty great episode for you today. I am very excited about the conversation you're about to listen to uh, with Valerie Gordon of Valerie Confections and Valerie Echo Park. Um, But before we get there, talking to someone who actually runs a bakery got me thinking about a little baking snafu I encountered over the past week that I thought would be fun to share with you all. And I have selfish reasons as well. The selfish reason being I kind of want to see if there's anybody out there who uh, wants to provide me some tips and tricks. So let me begin at a food festival that I went to uh, a couple weeks now. Um, It was Pizza City Fest, Pizza City Fest LA. It's a brand new festival that was launched this year for the first time um, at LA Live. And it was hosted by a friend of mine called Steve Delinsky. You may recall him from an earlier episode of this podcast. He's a Chicago-based author, a broadcaster, uh, pretty much just food expert extraordinaire. And uh, he's kind of made a name for himself as like the mayor of pizza, uh, especially in Chicago. He wrote the book on Chicago pizza, literally. There's literally a book out there on Chicago pizza written by Steve. And he created this event to showcase a bunch of different pizzas um, around Chicago initially. Uh, I think they had the first edition of Pizza City Fest last year in Chicago. And this year, he brought the event to Los Angeles at LA Live. He convened like dozens of different pizzerias, and they were all at the event space at LA Live serving slices. There was everything from Detroit style to Neapolitan to just like, you know, artisan wood-fired I really, really dug this event for multiple reasons. Um, First and foremost, Steve did a really good job of getting pizzerias that are in Los Angeles, but also sort of like in the surrounding areas. He brought in places from Orange County. There was a spot from Dana Point. Um, There was uh, a spot from Thousand Oaks and I mean, Agora Hills, pardon me if you're from that part of the world. Um, there was uh, a place that came down from San Francisco, shout out, I believe they were called Longbridge. They had like a sourdough crust thing going on. Um, and that to me was the best part of it. Obviously, you know, if you're a pizza head in Los Angeles, chances are you've been to a lot of the really great pizza spots, but this was a great 
event no matter where your entry point for pizza was because whether you've had all the spots in Los Angeles and you wanted to check out places that you hadn't been to from the surrounding areas or if you were a pizza aficionado that hadn't gone to all the Los Angeles hotspots, you had them all in one place and you were able to like go from booth to booth trying, you know, Pizzana or D-Town Pizzeria or L'Antica Pizzeria da Michele. There were so many different options and it was a very well-run event, super smooth. I initially was a little skeptical of the fact that you didn't get to have unlimited pizza. There was like 12 slices available with the regular pass and 16 slices available with the VIP pass. And initially I was like, hey, I'm a, I'm a big hungry boy, you know? I, I'm going to need more than that. Um, but I have to say, I didn't even make it through my entire pass. I think I got to like six different spots or seven different spots. And, you know, by the time I had had those in a few beers, I, you know, I had pizza coming out of my ears. I particularly enjoyed pizza from Tribute, a San Diego pizzeria. They were doing a really nice like Detroit-style uh, square, and they partnered with Heritage Barbecue, which is a barbecue spot I've been meaning to check out for a long time. They added like a – like it was like a, a braised brisket thing on top. Oh, my God. That thing was absolutely out of this world. So definitely highly recommend getting to Pizza City Fest next year just for the pizza but the added benefit to pizza city fest was that they had panels and if you are a pizza head like me that is such a draw to going to one of these things to be able to like be in the same room as people you really look up to people you really admire and hear them just like talk really frankly about their craft their journeys um it was a really special uh series of panels that steve put together the one that really spoke to me uh, was one called The Dough Whisperers. It was hosted by Neil Broner, who uh, you might know on Instagram as Slow Rise Pizza, and he's sort of like a pizza consultant, I think. You know, he's one of these people that like knows so much about dough that like pe places that are opening up that want to serve pizza reach out to him to like consult on their dough. He's like, he's he's kind of like a pizza savant, you know. He uh, hosted the panel, and on it were Evan Funky of Mother Wolf and Funky and all those great places. There was uh, Daniele Uditi, my boy from Pizzana, and there was also the guy who owns Bub and Grandma's. Um, so, you know, there was a diversity of different, you know, dough experts on there. And it was just such a fun discussion because they were just talking, you know, very generally about their approach to dough. And I think that when you think about dough, and making dough, whether it's for bread or for pizza or for whatever, I've typically always associated more with science than with art. You know, it's it's baking. Um, and in baking, oftentimes, you have to be very exact. You need to have the exact measurements. You need to know exactly uh, which which uh, the amount of flour to use against which hydration with a special type of yeast. And then there's the temperature factor, et cetera, et cetera. And so I've never really thought of it as this like very, you know, organic living process. But the way they were talking about it, they were very encouraging of just getting in the kitchen and experimenting. Basically, like, yes, it's science, but there's also an element of art and creativity and feeling to it, you know? 
they really were so uh, like positive and uh, optimistic about people's ability to just you know combine these ingredients of flour, water, yeast, and just have fun. Get in there, discover what works for you, um, get a feel for it. You know, they also were very clear that it's okay to fail when you're doing this, when you're when you're trying to make your own dough. Now, for me. In the past, I have made dough. I've made uh, lots of different pizza styles. I've really tried to experiment in the past, and and by experiment, I mean try different recipes. You know, um, I've I've watched so many YouTube videos about like you know how to get the perfect Neapolitan dough versus you know whether you're trying to make a more Roman style slice, and then getting in the kitchen and and trying to make it work for myself. And more often than not. I've been disappointed, you know, even when I've made a decent pizza, uh, there's always been an element of, uh, it just wasn't perfect. It just didn't hit the mark, like compared to the other pizzas I've had around town. And I oftentimes used to blame it on my oven. You know, I used to blame it on the fact that I didn't have one of these high heat, like wood burning numbers, just a home oven. How, how could you possibly expect me to make, you know, an extraordinary pizza. And I think to to some extent that's true, but also to a much larger extent, that's kind of just an excuse. You can definitely make a a really excellent restaurant quality pizza in your home with your home oven. And the, the panel, the dough whisperers panel really inspired me to get into the kitchen and just start playing around with dough. So literally the weekend after my wife, after the, after the festival, my wife was out. And so, you know, I just decided to, to play around with some dough. I got in the kitchen and I, I got some, I bought some bread flour because I wanted to make something that was a little, a little more like a baker's pizza, uh, something more like a Roman style. So, I combined, you know, uh, bread flour with uh, some just commercial yeast um, and and lukewarm water, and I I tried I tried a method which was don't knead it so much, just knead it enough to combine all the ingredients, and then what we're gonna do is we're gonna pop it in the fridge and let it just let it ferment over a few days and sort of let the time do the work of you know letting that gluten develop within the dough um let me tell you i was not optimistic because i'd never done it this way and i definitely you know i definitely think my lack of optimism came through in the end product you know something that evan funky said on the panel and i kind of mocked it on the last podcast and i stand by mocking it but he said that dough senses fear as bombastic as a statement that is as that is, I think there's some truth to it. I definitely think, you know, the dough can sense if you're, if you're not feeling it, you know, if, if you don't believe in yourself, ain't no way that a good product is coming out. And, you know, I think I went in there with like a positive attitude of wanting to experiment, but I don't think I really believed in myself. And let me tell you, I did not make an excellent pizza. So I left that dough in there for like two days to, uh, to cold ferment. And when I opened it up, it had zero rise. Like, like the yeast had not activated at all. It was the exact same clump of dough 
that I had made a few days before. And I thought, what the hell? I'll try and pop it in the oven anyways. So I turned on my oven to like 480 or something. I pulled out the dough ball from the refrigerator and I just let it sit for a couple hours to get to room temp. And I flattened it out. And when I was flattening it out, flattening it out, I could tell this was not going to be a delicious pizza. This, uh, this was giving pie crust, um, not so much pizza dough. There was very little elasticity to it, um, and yeah, sure enough, when I pulled it out of the onion, uh, of out of the onion, out of the oven, was a, it was a damn cracker, a damn cracker. Um, didn't taste horrible, but it was not anything close to pizza. But you know what? I'm gonna take what I learned on that panel, which is you know just have fun with it. You know, don't give up. Uh, this is, this is supposed to be fun and I'm not going to let this, not going to let this, uh, little setback stop me. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to uh, try something different next time in terms of method. Um, and, uh, I'll report back on how things go, but, um, yeah. Have you ever tried to make pizza? If so, I would love to hear how you do it. I uh, would love to hear any tips and tricks you have for uh, the home chef. And uh, yeah. And if anybody wants to come on and talk, uh, talk making pizza, let me know. We could do a whole episode on, on pizza making. Anyways, enough about my, uh, my amateur baking exploits. It's time to talk to somebody who actually knows what they're doing. We'll be right back with Valerie Gordon. Okay, I'm so excited because today we are joined by a, a very special guest. We are joined by a creative director, CEO, executive chef, but it's really just Valerie, Valerie Gordon of Valerie Confections and Valerie Echo Park. Valerie, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Uh, much better now. You know, it's, it's been, uh, it's actually been kind of a wild day, but it's really nice to sit down and be able to have a chat with you. Um, you, you say, you're, what are your stomping grounds in the city? I live in Laurel Canyon, um, nice. but my businesses are in Glendale and Echo Park, and I mm -hmm. kind of I go all over. I'm mobile. Yeah, 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 totally. That's good. I mean, in, in LA, to really get the most of the city, you got to be mobile. Mm -hmm. um, are Are you from LA? Or are you Are you born and raised here? You're transplant. No, I'm a California gal though, but I'm a transplant. I was born and raised in San Francisco. And I moved okay. here in 98. So I'm kind of, I mean, I, I've been here for more than a minute, for sure. I think that makes you an Angelino at this point. I do too. I definitely consider yeah. it home. I don't, I don't reference San Francisco as my home anymore. Do you still carry some of that San Francisco like superiority that they have up there? Or are you, are you, uh, are you an LA like, you know, ride or die at this point? I, you know, I don't, I think that San Francisco's superiority has been humbled naturally. So <laughs> I don't, it, there's definitely been some large shifts in the city in the last few years. So um, I, I don't want to, you know, magnify any challenges that, uh, my hometown is experiencing, but I, I would course. say, I always say I'm from, I'm, I'm from Los Angeles. When people say, where are you from? I say Los Angeles. Yeah. When people say, where, where were you born? It's San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I'm the same way. I was actually born in Europe and I grew mm -hmm. up in Europe, but I've been here for like more, for more than a decade now. And I very much consider myself an Angelino and I mm -hmm. always tell people I'm from Los Angeles. So I completely hear you on that. And you know, 
San Francisco has great food. Um, were you always passionate about food growing up or, or was it something you found a little later in life? No, I was always really, really into food as a child. And my parents were very much about uh, quality food. They were very dedicated to home cooking. Um, my dad actually ran an organic farm like forever ago. Um, wow. So like we didn't, we, we didn't eat fast food. We didn't mm -hmm. eat and we were definitely exposed to, and this was one of the great things about growing up in San Francisco is I was always exposed to every kind of food. There was never a limitation of, oh, we don't eat that or we don't, you know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I had food from around the, the world as a very young child. I was exposed to uh, all forms of Chinese cuisine, Korean cuisine, Japanese food. Um, Ethiopian food, mm -hmm. European foods, like all of it, all of it yeah. as a child, because everywhere you went, there is an enclave in San Francisco where you, right. you really are. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite privileged to have access to so many incredible foods and fresh produce. And I grew up going to the farmer's market when I was probably like four years old. Wow. Yeah. Well, and then San Francisco was like, you know. Well, not San Francisco, but Berkeley in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. home of Alice Waters and Shaken sure. East and all yes. of this. So, you know, you kind of it, it was kind of in the zeitgeist. Yes, completely. And I, I started baking when I was eight years old um, and I worked in restaurants from the time I was 21. And it was absolutely during that period of when mm -hmm. farm to table was really. Uh, it It was sort of the that's that was like the energy that was happening in all of the restaurants and i was a maitre d at like one of the most popular restaurants where literally all the produce was coming from the farmer's market it was a total scene it was it was a really exciting time to be in restaurants in san francisco for sure and which restaurant was that um restaurant lulu at fourth okay. and Folsom. um and I mean, it was like everybody went there. It was amazing. It was an amazing place. And very, and everything was served family style, mm -hmm. totally organic, extremely seasonal, all Ligurian cuisine. So mm. I was there from 90, I, I was a maitre d' from like 94 to 98. And then I moved here. How was the maitre d' life? You know, my, my wife was a maitre d' in mm -hmm. New York for a while. And, uh, she mentioned that you kind of have a lot of power when mm -hmm. you're a maitre d', especially at such a popular spot. I loved it. Um, I loved it because you really had to think on your feet. Um, mm -hmm. And this was before you had all those seating apps. Everything was manual. Mm -hmm. So I had, and there were three rooms that I had to seat at that specific restaurant. So I had a reservation list and then I would have to, assess walk-ins, VIP walk-ins, and seat each table and get three turns out of each table. Like it was wow. really, it was a very layered game of Tetris every night. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was a thrilling job to have. It was a lot of fun. And we also like, we were all like little door divas. We all had, you know, <laughs> like, you know, clothing stores would like take care, like we were like, you know, micro influencers before that happened because stores yeah. would like compass clothes because we would wear them 
at these restaurants that were very popular and people would be like, where'd you get your dress? Here's where I got my dress. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was a pretty, it wasn't a bad deal. I have to say it was a great situation to be in, in my early twenties. And I had a lot of fun and I learned a lot too. It was very, yeah. it was a very stimulating environment. For yeah. Sure. What a, what a time. I mean, for what that to, uh, like, like to be the, to be the OG influencers, um, it, you know, when you said it, I was like, wait, how does that work? But that actually makes a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. You are all in sort of the shop window yes. of like the hottest spots. So mm -hmm. of course that like the marketers would want to reach out to you to like, you know, be the spokespeople. Well, you know, at least the models, if you will, for their products, it makes total sense. Did you have any, you know, because obviously hotspots, San Francisco, the nineties, did you have any like uh, fun, fun run-ins? Oh my God, there were tons. And all this, all the celebrities who, uh, whenever they were in town shooting, you know, like Johnny Depp, Keanu Reeves, Bill Clinton, um, <laughs> you know, Jeremiah Tower always went there. He always came late after his restaurant stars was closed and he would show up with sort of a, coterie of attractive young people um you know alice waters was always around like it was just a whole it was a thing marion cunningham from the fanny farmer cookbook yeah. is such a legend she was a regular um there it was it was very much a who's who of california yeah. cuisine at a very very interesting time so when did you get the bug to switch from front of house to back of house well, I moved here in 98 and I started and I was managing Le Deux Cafe, which was owned mm -hmm. by Michelle Lemmy, who is Rick mm -hmm. Owen's wife and quite a celebrity now as well. Um, yeah. And I moved here and I was the manager of that restaurant until it closed in 2003. And that's where I really learned a lot. Like that's where like all the pieces really came together for me of creating a true brand, creating an experience. Um, I met tons of people there that definitely assisted with the launch of Valerie Confections. And my whole life, I always baked and made candy. So it was mm -hmm. sort of like this private thing that I did. And I, it was really yeah. my solace. It was a creative outlet. And I was very hesitant to do it as a profession because I thought, mm -hmm. No, the front part, like the business end of it, the hospitality end of it is I'm okay, like earning my keep doing that. If I, yeah. if this thing that I truly love doing becomes the way that I earn a living, what if it ruins the love? You know what I mean? Totally. Like it was yeah. really my safe space and the thing that I just adore doing, but I always made gifts for people and I would do mm -hmm. these very elaborate selections of baked goods and chocolates and such and give them to people and totally self-taught i would just like make sense <laughs> that's so hard i mean i i totally hear what you're saying mm -hmm. because like there's that old adage you know if you love what you do you'll never work a day yes. in your life but then there's the flip side of that mm -hmm. is if something because that you love becomes your job and how you make your livelihood it just gets all this extra baggage attached. You yes. know, I used to make podcasts in my bedroom just for myself and, and that was fun, but I'm, I'm just kidding. I never did that, <laughs> but, um, I, uh, I, I totally hear where you're coming from. So what was it like for you? Like, like what, how did you overcome sort of that, that fear of like, you know, taking this thing that was something you loved 
and saying, hey, I'm going to go all in on this and, and, and see if I can make it into a business? Well, sort of the, the hobby aspect of it had become so extreme that people were just like, okay, you are now wasting your time. You need to start your own business. Like, this is nuts. Mm. And my now husband and I were dating at the time. And he and I would collaborate after we got together, we would like collaborate on these gifts and we called it tall and small productions um, because he's six foot four and I'm a little under, <laughs> I'm a little under five, three. So physically we're quite different. Um, yeah. And he, it's all relative. Yeah. He's really good at graphic design and packaging design and stuff like that. So he did a lot of the exterior stuff and I would do all the recipes and we would put it together. And the last year that we did that, which was holiday 2003, people were just like, okay, this is real. Like, seriously, you need to start something. And at that same yeah. time, uh, the restaurant Le Deux Cafe closed because Michelle moved to Paris. So I sort of just hung out for like a month and had a lot of lunches and just sort of thought about what I wanted to do. And then one day I was like, it's toffee. I'm, I'm going to start a luxury toffee company. Because mm -hmm. at the time, no one was doing um, upscale toffee. It was all like truffles and luxury chocolate was really, really happening in the early aughts. Yeah. Like it was huge. Like there was so much luxury everywhere. And I- What was the, what were the like brands that were doing it or the, the, the stores? Uh, Vosges was huge then mm -hmm. out of Chicago, um, Katrina Markov's company, um, Mary Bell. Uh, Michael Ricuti, uh, La Maison de Chocolat had opened a couple of boutiques in New York, um, mm -hmm. Keys in New York. So there was this whole thing happening in chocolate, but yeah. also like in candles and perfume. Like there were these yeah, little yeah, like yeah. luxury item things that were really taking off. And so I just thought I'm going to apply all of the like the way that truffles have different flavors, I'm going to apply that to toffee and make it really, really mm. refined in keepsake boxes. So we studied a lot of um, branding of like Chanel, Prada, um, that sort of thing, and sort of modeled those templates a little bit in our packaging so that there were boxes that you would want to keep. And like, yeah, you know what I, I mean? And put like your cufflinks in or your, you know, your cash in or whatever people put in small boxes you know mm -hmm. i'm not here to judge people's <laughs> um <laughs> whatever people for people's you know people's storage keep, habits yeah, keep totally. on their dressers um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's kind of how it all started and it, so and cool. it launched quickly it launched very very quickly our first account was dean and deluca which is crazy because mm -hmm. they're bankrupt now yeah um we were at Takasha Maya in New York on Fifth Avenue. Like we were in, we, we were positioned in a lot of very prestigious uh, specialty food areas of the country. Where were you? Did you have a commissary kitchen or were you doing it from home? Oh, hon, when we started, it was like all smoke and mirrors. So we had yeah. a little two bedroom apartment uh, in mid city and our second uh -huh. bedroom was our office. We set up a second phone line for Valerie Confections. The only way that you could order was via fax or phone. And oh, wow. we had a website that was shot like it was 
a complete riff on that spring Mew Mew campaign. So it looked really elegant and very, very pretty. And no one could tell that we were doing everything out of our apartment. Yeah. <laughs> that like that's a... an 18-year-old intern. It was me standing an 18-year-old intern. And that's great. And like it's it's honestly like I feel like so many people like hear like what it takes to start a yeah. business and they're like, well, I can't do it because of X or Y. Mm -hmm. And they come up with all these like faux barriers, yep. if you will. You just got to kind of do it and fake it till you make it totally. sometimes. Stan was waiting tables at night. Like we didn't pay ourselves for like two years. Like that's how it is. Yeah. When you're a true startup, yeah. you don't have a budget to pay yourself. Like you have to yeah. make sure that you've got enough money to keep the company moving and to keep it going. And then, you know, once you get established, you can start to draw some money. But no, we both had like jobs that were actually paid to do things and we were doing all of this, you know, it was just blood, sweat and tears and a lot of totally. really pretty boxes and a lot of really pretty ribbon, <laughs> you know, and we got press right away. Um, and it just grew from there. Yeah. So when you were first fulfilling your orders mm -hmm. to the Dean and DeLucas mm -hmm. of the world, did you have a moment where you were like, I I'm an imposter. Like, are you sure you want to be like, I, I can only imagine like if I'm doing it out of mm -hmm. my apartment and all of a sudden I'm supplying one of the like most luxurious stores with my product, with the things I'm making, like I, I would get a little freaked out, you know, can, can I do this? I don't think I got freaked out. It was more, uh, like, did I think of myself as an imposter at the time? Probably a little bit, probably because yeah. very quickly we were put on like best chocolate lists, which is like yeah, kind right. of hysterical. But I had been, you know, I we were we were making an excellent product, and it mm -hmm. and I had always been doing this, even though I wasn't classically trained. And I had been exposed mm -hmm. to so much of the food industry for so long that I think I yeah. felt versed in that way. Um, but yeah. owning a company and dealing with taxes and dealing with all the permits and all, <laughs> you know, that garbage stuff that makes you want to die a little bit, that was all really, really hard to set up and yeah. try to navigate and figure out. But then also because I had done I was the manager of a restaurant, I understood a lot of like all the payroll stuff and all the you know, a lot of the filings and all that kind of stuff that, so that, that end of it all sort of came together too, but it was definitely, you know, it was, it was a massive juggle. It was a massive, yeah. massive juggle for sure. And so you did Valerie confections for several years mm -hmm. before you actually opened Valerie Echo Park as well. Is that correct? That's correct. So Valerie Echo Park is almost 10. Wow. wow. It feels like it opened yesterday. That cute little cafe. <laughs> but Echo Park is like the most loyal community. I just have such gratitude for that whole neighborhood. And just, we actually had our most, our best month ever last month, 10 years in. Wow. Great. Like, Congratulations. I was just like, that's so, that's, that's nuts. Like, that's really amazing. It, yeah. It's a yeah. good feeling. Like, you don't, you don't see that often. I feel mm -hmm. like a lot of these places that open up, especially especially in some neighborhoods like Echo mm -hmm. Park, I, I, 
you, they tend to like burn really mm -hmm. bright, really fast. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's hard to sustain success over a period of like 10 years, mm -hmm. right? Well, I always say to our staff and to a variety of people that we work with is we've never been the hot flash. Mm. We've never been the cool kids ever, mm -hmm. ever, ever. We've mm -hmm. never been that place that all of a sudden gets like nuts buzz. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We've always been slow I, and steady, slow and steady, slow and steady. I, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a little bit of humility on your part because I do, I definitely have remembered times in the culinary zeitgeist where your name was absolutely everywhere. And my friends were like, Oh, you want to go get a coffee at Valerie Echo Park? It's a super cute spot. And they were like, so like, I, I do feel you've burned bright as well, but it's just amazing that like you've been able to sustain and the fact that you had your best month ever last mm -hmm. month especially <laughs> you know people forget yes. too that like we we've navigated a pandemic mm -hmm. and you've navigated a pandemic mm -hmm. as a business owner I, i'm curious what was that like having to go through that period both with valerie confections mm -hmm. and valerie echo park because i can only imagine that you know demand for chocolate was an uncertain thing and confections was an uncertain thing during the pandemic no um, chocolate was very much in demand, just like alcohol, just like alcohol, because it was okay, like anything go. that will numb your freak out, your depression, your anxiety, people were buying by the truckload. Uh. So, um, the pandemic actually was, the pandemic is weird. We were curiously prepared for the pandemic because we got our company through the recession. And mm -hmm. so because we had, and the recession, I would say was terrifying. Um, yeah. Like the winter of 2008, our little company was then four years old and we had gotten it to the point where we were extremely well positioned to really like explode. We were, we had yeah. the cover of the Dean and DeLuca catalog. We had like three pages in the Williams-Sonoma catalog. We were in Bergdorf wow. Goodman. We were like all the key players for specialty food, like upscale specialty food, we had great positioning for, and mm -hmm. it all crashed. So our sale, like the, the quarter where we were like, we are lining the sucker up, you know, we like really put all of our money into front loading for that. And it was a disaster. And yeah. then right, so the very beginning of 2009 was when I just kind of went, we've got a rejigger here and we focused on local at the beginning of 2009 mm. and we set up farmer's market booths and I developed a line of pastries and we really, we did a, what people now call a pivot. We did a massive yeah. pivot during the recession and that kept us going and diversified our brand and we became an everyday treat as opposed to a gifting treat or a holiday That's treat. That's so smart. And at a much lower price point as well. So And that was key during the recession, huge. right? I remember huge. what I remember about that time is that was what right around the time that I moved to LA mm -hmm. actually. And um, you know, I was looking for my first job and uh I, I happened to find a job at a little store I like to call J. Oh Crew. yeah. Don't know if you've heard oh, of yeah. it. Oh yeah. Um but we got so much business mm -hmm. during the recession because there were folks that used to shop at like, you know, Bloomingdale's yep. and North and they, they needed something that still gave them, you know, that sort of like feeling of purchasing something mm -hmm. new, but at a lower price point. So they, you know, J crew was like 
really, really busy, especially the one in Century City where I worked. Mm -hmm. I'd like to take some credit for that, but All I can't. All you, baby. But, All uh, you. <laughs> but, Luca made it happen. Uh, it's a, Luca made it happen. That's the name of my autobiography. Um, that is a very smart pivot because to your point, I feel like that's what people would have gravitated mm -hmm. towards during the recession. Slightly lower price point, something that you're getting on an everyday basis. And and how did that go for you going from like, you know, the Dean and DeLucas of the world to go, showing up at the farmer's market? What was that like? Hard. It was really, really hard. Yeah. And it, and I mean, my husband had to like wake up at the crack of dawn and set up these booths. Like it was a lot of heavy, yeah. heavy lifting. We had our first kid in 2007 to an infant through all of this as well. Wow. It was really hard, but then it really did change our company. And like, we wouldn't have opened mm -hmm. Echo Park or our other cafes if we hadn't developed that whole line of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it actually facilitated growth in a funny way. And we ended up not, I mean, we didn't collapse. You know what I mean? It kept us yeah. going and kept us moving forward. Um, and then in 2013, we opened Valerie Echo Park and Valerie Grand Central Market. Um, mm -hmm. We did close Grand Central Market in 2018. And, and, we, yeah. and we also had our commissary kitchen, which was on First Street then um, on Virgil. So sort of like south of Silver Lake. So. We're like, uh, so you were like squirrels. Yeah, exactly. Of. Like a few blocks down from squirrel was where we were for years, years and years. So when the pandemic hit, what was interesting is I think we already had that muscle memory of, yeah. you know, don't think of closing, keep going. Immediately mm -hmm. we figured out we didn't need to close because, mm -hmm. and we also had shipping capabilities set up because we yeah. already were shipping all over the country. And so we were in actually a very fortunate position where we just had to be smart and agile. And I just kind of looked at things as everything was starting to crash and went, and I wasn't looking at what we couldn't do. I was looking at what can we do? And yeah. I think it's a yeah. real, like, you know, what's that black or white, uh, uh, grid where yes, it's like that thing. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and that was all I focused on was what can we do? What can we sell? And we realized quickly, we didn't have to close Echo Park. We turned it into a marketplace in literally 24 hours, set up, so set up a second website where people could pre-order things and pick them up. Um, we also realized that nobody could get flour, yeast, toilet paper mm -hmm. all the grocery stores were empty but all the wholesalers were packed with stuff mm. so we we literally like and we already had like you know we have an in, in a, our in-house designer i was like okay now we're valerie market <laughs> let's do <laughs> let's design the stickers folks so we were like literally like bagging like cute craft bags of flour you know marking it up a lot and selling it um yeah as you yeah. have to yeah so it just immediately and then it happened really really quickly and we were doing like drop-offs for people we were like and we didn't close we didn't close at all and we were very strict with our staff and we just sort of made 
an internal pact of we are all looking out for each other's welfare. If one of us gets COVID, we will likely all get yeah. COVID and this whole thing shuts down. Um, you know, no one had to like, yeah, we just, we literally, we just like kept it going and kept it going. And we were so fortunate that we could ship because everybody yeah. wanted things delivered to them. And all of a sudden people were just like, you know, I don't want one small box of chocolate. I want 10 big ass boxes of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> like, and it's like, great. Off we ship, off we ship. So, yeah. you know, it's true. We were, we were, it was really hard. Um, I was homeschooling two children for 14 months. Oh my. And running God, this company. Yeah. And it was, it was deep. And it was like a level of stress that was almost undefinable. You know what I mean? Where you're just yeah. like, but yeah. you also just get those survivor blinders on. And it's like, this is what we have to do to keep moving forward. Yeah. And we've got a family so to support. We've got a staff to support. And there is no option. You know, you've got yeah. to keep going. Well, fast forward to 2023 yes. and you've now had your best month mm -hmm. ever, which is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. And I understand that there's a new location slash relocation in Glendale coming up. Well, it already happened, babe. You've got to come over. It already yeah. happened. Oh my so, God. Oh wow. I'm, I'm sleeping on we've it. We've got like a full on compound in Glendale. So we closed that first street location where we had been for 15 years. Hi. Um, last year we moved to Glendale. We have a 5,000 square foot space where wow. we have a full retail area and three kitchens we have an event space we have a tasting room and lovely office spaces we have an employee kitchen so that like they can have like a great break area that's really well stocked we've got a smoothie station for our staff <laughs> <laughs> You've come come a long way from that two bedroom apartment in Mid City, huh? Listen, no, it kind of feels the same. I was like, <laughs> there's a lot of the same struggles every day. We have a nicer house for sure. Like our our facility is a lot nicer than it used to be, um, yeah. but uh, and it's fun. Like we're doing tons of activations there. We're doing classes. Like we hosted a sample sale from Natalie Martin last week. We're doing afternoon teas. We're doing we're doing a lot. We're doing a lot. So it's really wow. fun because I love hosting events. And um, that has really been an exciting thing to bring that to fruition, to bring different people together and have a space where we can do that and to host things. And the yeah. afternoon tea thing is like a full on lifelong fantasy because I love afternoon tea. What? Well, so talk me, is it like a high tea situation where you're you come, you get tea and, and like uh, biscuits and things yeah, like that? Yeah, so it is, it's definitely, it's, I would say it's a very California, a modern California take on afternoon tea. It's all in our garden. Okay. Um, and it's on like ceramic platters. There's no tiered towers. There's no chintz. There's no florals. <laughs> it's very... Um, it's more about like muted earth tones and really delicious food. So, oh, yeah, so we're doing, um, we, you know, you get scones and lemon curd. And of course we make pedophores. So there's pedophores. We're doing 
tea sandwiches from house-made milk bread, a lovely selection of teas. It's really, every one of them is totally sold out. It's crazy. So it's pretty exciting because really I was being just incredibly self-indulgent when I said, let's just try an afternoon tea. I was like, I kind of, I just want to do it. Like, let's just see what happens. And we- It makes perfect sense. People want it. They want the afternoon tea. There is like a frenzy. Like as soon as we release dates, they're just like book, 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 booked, done. So it's pretty, I think we're going to, we booked it out for the day before Easter was the first day. We had two seatings, totally sold out. Two, um, the day before Mother's Day, same thing. Day before Father's Day, we've got a midsummer tea, and we're definitely going to move it to every Saturday because the demand is quite high, wow. and it's lovely. It's so, it's really, really lovely. Like people are just like sitting in the that. garden, and there's something like so indulgent and leisurely about afternoon tea. Yes. you know, it's just about yes. enjoyment. I also love the sort of like rhythm of like having something that you, you can look Mm -hmm. forward to as a consumer, you know, like if you know, like Valerie's got the, the teas going on on Mm -hmm. Saturdays, mark my calendar, you know, whenever I can, I'll go that kind of thing. There's like a beautiful Mm -hmm. rhythm that's happening in Los Angeles right now. There's like Thai taco Mm -hmm. Tuesday over at Anna Jack and in the Valley there's uh, Danielle. Yeah. Yeah. Daniele Uditi is doing Mm -hmm. pasta nights every few Tuesdays on two, you know, and now to have something like this on a Saturday, it's just, I love the rhythm the city is like offering us as eaters. It's a beautiful time to be eating it's in Los really Angeles. It's really good. We're so spoiled. Yeah. It's really, really good. It's, it's, it really is. It's, a, it's such a wonderful time for the food industry. And there was so much challenge. And I feel like, I mean, when I moved here in 98, there were like five restaurants that anyone talked about. You know what I mean? Literally five. Yeah. Campanile, what were Yeah, it was Campanile. Luke had just opened. Um, You know, they were just so spago, um, you know, but there was just a very small handful of destination restaurants. And now it's like, it's nuts. It's just, it's everywhere. There's so much good food and also creative food, interesting food. Yeah. It's exciting. It's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, I, it's there's so much. There's one thing that I wanted to make mm-hmm. sure we touched on before before I let you go back to Glendale, and that is, uh, I noticed that we have a shared passion for barbecue. Oh yes, um, and I'm so curious about this, <laughs> how you got into it, and like you know, I I know you're judging mm-hmm. contests and whatnot, like from one one per you know one barbecue lover to another. How the heck do you get to do that? You I, know? I implied myself on the barbecue community. So I was like <laughs> a freaky barbecue stalker. And uh, yeah, nice. I, I wrote a cookbook a while ago. And when I was on book tour, I, I was sent out to be in Texas for like 10 days. And I was by myself. And this was like in 2013 uh-huh. or 2014. And um, I was like, what am I going to do in Texas by myself for 10 days? And I didn't know anyone in Texas at the time. And I was like, I'm going to learn about barbecue. So I like went, I researched and I got, came up with a list and went all over to like everywhere I stopped. I was like, where's the best barbecue here? Where's the best barbecue here? Mm -hmm. And that experience really made me fall in love with barbecue. And what I fell in love with was the ritual of how barbecue Mm -hmm. is made 
and also the community yeah. around barbecue and how convivial it is. Mm -hmm. And so I would just kind of like stalk different barbecue events and pop-ups. And then I started, when I would see barbecue events happening, I would contact whoever was planning <laughs> and be like, hey, this is who I am. Um, and uh, I want to do desserts at your barbecue thing. And, oh, and, I, and I've developed over 30 recipes to do desserts on grills over live fire. And, you know, there aren't, particularly when I started doing this, there were very few women and I'm also yeah. minority. And so reaching out to people and being like, hi, I'm seeing there's no <laughs> women and no dessert. Can I get on your roster? <laughs> and I think it was kind of hard for people to say no, you know, <laughs> because it's yeah, not the I best mean, look to uh, say like, no, right? No, of course not. But also, like, every, you know, every barbecue needs a dessert. And, you know, I always say there's so much more that you can do beyond a grilled peach. So, like, actual yeah. dessert from barbecue. And from that, I started getting on, into different events. And then I started... um I actually MC a barbecue boot camp at the Alice All twice a year, three times a year. I'm coordinating a variety so cool. of different barbecue events with different people. I do a lot of live fire content. Um, and I do savory and sweet. Absolutely now. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it's a whole like side thing that I do that I just adore. I mean, I did a video last week using, do you know Smallhold, the mushroom people? Uh, no, I don't. It's like it's it's genius. It's the future of mushrooms. But I did a uh, lion's mane mushroom on me, that was like over yeah. the grill, oh. and it was so. And that video just like blew up because I was just like searing these mushrooms until they got totally caramelized, and I used fish sauce oh and God. butter, and like grilling this buttery bread, and it. It's just, that's the kind of stuff that I do. I just go for really big flavor, make it fun, you know, and just the barbecue community, I just adore. I adore. Yeah. And eating barbecue is like, and you know that smell? Like after you leave a good barbecue, yeah. you're like everything smells like smoke and it's so awesome. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's, they, they should bottle right? that up and make and that it's a just perfume, like, right? Yeah. Uh, it's transportive. And there's just like uh -huh. immediately this feeling of like joy and also relaxation. Like you're never in a rush mm -hmm. at a barbecue, you know, it's when, true. when you yeah. watch like yeah. Adam Perry Lang slice brisket, it's the most Zen activity in the world, mm -hmm. the way he slowly slices that off and everyone's just queuing up with their Topo Chico and their beer and their micheladas and it's just joy. It's great. Yeah. Beautiful. And there's something, there's, there's a little bit of a parallel between the life of a baker and the life of a mm -hmm. barbecue pit master in the, in the sense like early mm -hmm. mornings, a lot of yep. patience, a lot of, a lot of repetition and whatnot. Um, and there's something so yes. meditative about it too, at least in the pit master where world where you're mm -hmm. like, you know, just letting something go low mm -hmm. and slow for hours you're in this like smoky almost like sauna-esque environment you know i can only imagine some deep deep reflections yeah. have happened oh. in, in, in barbecue yeah. pits <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Valerie, we're all, look, I, I know we're, we're approaching time, but I have to ask you one okay. more question, and that is I'm, I'm eating 100 Whoa. sandwiches in L.A. this year. Um, 100, that, that actually doesn't sound like a lot, but good job acting surprised because if you think about it, 100 mm-hmm. sandwiches is just like having lunch mm-hmm. three times a mm-hmm. week or something. But my goal is to do epic okay. sandwiches, like, like, you know, like kind of that, that, that mm-hmm. mushroom one you just outlined. That sounds epic, right? What would you recommend as someone who loves food, someone who knows bread, someone who loves big flavors? What what are your favorite sandwiches in LA right I now? love Maison Mathos on Melrose. That dude. I've oh, never dude, even heard of it. It is. It's incredible. He does an omelet. He's, first of all, he's so cute. He wears like the full like chapeau, full chef's gear. Maison Mathos, it's teeny. It's, it's. A closet. It's on Melrose near um, Western on the south side. Okay. You'll Google it. Um, there's two things you need from <laughs> them, though. You need the butter and ham sandwich with the, it is, it's transcendent. It's so good. But really, their omelet sandwich is what you want. It mm. is, and it's got like Gruyere, it's ooey, it's enormous, it's beautifully cooked. Mm-hmm. They bake their own bread. It is, I love that place. I just think what they're doing is super, super important and really, really delicious. It's great. Very yeah, cool. go there. Yeah. R- written down, logged in my mind. It needs to be, be on there. the hundred for sure. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it'll it'll be there. It'll be there. Um, well, I I hope to see you at a at a tea in Glendale uh, uh, very soon. Yes, I absolutely will. But thank you so much for for joining us. It's been such a delight. Um, and congratulations on Thank all your you. success. Congratulations to you. You kept J. Crew going. You and Jenna Lyons, <laughs> I you know, did. you I did, did it. Yeah, no, it was really hard work. And, you know, the Gingham oh, community thanks. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. This was super fun. Thank you so much. Thanks, Valerie. Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to Valerie Gordon for joining us. If you like what you heard, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating, a review, subscribe if you should be so inclined. And if you're looking for me, you can find me on TikTok and on Instagram at the LA Countdown. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N.